Welcome to Wise Health for Women Radio with Linda Prater. Women are pressed daily to give more, learn more, and be more, often at the expense of mind, body, or spirit. Each week with intriguing guests and topics, we'll bring you fresh ways to view your limited time, encouraging a shift to new, healthier perspectives. Wise Health for Women Radio, helping women thrive. And now here's your host, Linda Prater. Good morning and welcome. We have a fascinating guest for you today. Nancy Rines is joining us and she has had a near-death experience. And this brought on enormous changes in her life. And I am very excited to hear about a lot of the details that she talks about in her book, How Her Near-Death Experience Turned an Atheist into a Believer, 12 Lessons. 12 Life Lessons from a Near-Death Experience. I think we've all heard of these or seen movies about near-death experiences. And there's a remarkable similarity with what people talk about. And I have to believe that they're true. And so, Nancy, I welcome you to our show. Thank you so much. You're welcome. I'm really eager to learn about this. First of all, I should say up front, I have a strong faith foundation. And so... I am really fascinated how you made such a metamorphosis from an atheist as a scientist into someone who believed, but also that you then had different physical and mental characteristics, emotional characteristics, when you came back. So can we start at the beginning and talk about your accident and and your near-death experience? Sure, Uh, I'd love to. Well, the the accident itself happened just about five years ago. It was uh, in January of 2014. Um, it was a beautiful, bright, sunny, warm day in Colorado, and often is the case there. It's the winters there are pretty nice. <laughs> they really and, are. <laughs> <laughs> and I um I went out for my typical bike ride. I I back then I rode um, on the roads quite a bit. I rode my bikes. Um, on trails and roads, but to that day I wanted to go out and do some errands in town and just set out as normal. I did have a little interesting intuition before I left that I should just put my bike back in the garage and go back inside. <laughs> I don't know where that came from. <laughs> well, do you now pay attention to your intuition? I do, but I didn't then. I just ignored it at that point because it didn't make any sense to me. <laughs> Keep going. I love that. So I, yeah. So I set off on just about a half a mile from my home. I went into one of those traffic circles or roundabouts and stayed in the bike lane, which actually, in this case, kind of petered out when it went into the into the traffic circle. Mm-hmm. And a woman was driving a big SUV, like a Chevy Tahoe. Mm-hmm from the right on a road coming in from the right and it looked like she was going to slow down and stop which is what people typically do and there was a car behind me so I really couldn't I didn't have a lot of room to maneuver on my bike Mm -hmm. so I just went a little bit slower and watched her and at the very last minute I realized that she wasn't stopping she was actually kind of accelerating or plowing (sighs) forward without even slowing down she did not see you pardon me she did not see you no, she was too busy with her phone. Oh no. <laughs> yeah, it turns out when I when she hit me, I ended up on her hood of her of her SUV and looked in and 
she had her hands on the steering wheel and her phone, and she was paying a little bit more attention to texting on her phone than she was to where she was driving. You remember um, that? Oh, yeah. I, did, I remember the whole thing very vividly. <laughs> wow. And it's, it turned out it was a really good thing that I maintained full awareness and consciousness through the accident, even though it was I mean, obviously traumatic, you know, at the mm-hmm. time and for some months afterward. If I hadn't maintained that awareness and consciousness, I likely would have died, as we'll see. So I was hit from my from my right side. I ended up somehow. I ended up on her on her hood. I think I must have done some kind of a flip. Mm. My bike ended up under her vehicle right away. And as she kept driving, she didn't see me on the hood of her vehicle. She kept driving into the traffic circle. I finally slipped down and fell off over the front of her car as she was driving, kind of like one of those. How did she possibly miss that? I, I don't know. <laughs> I honestly don't know. Um, this is in a very big she, vehicle, and you must be a small woman. <laughs> because how do you hit something and not realize it? So did she even, when did she finally realize that she'd hit someone? Well, it was... It was quite a way, I mean, quite a while later in my, in my, um, mind, it was probably, she finally dragged me under, under her vehicle for about 50 feet is what the police reckoned. Mm. Um, I, mean, I don't know time-wise what the elapsed amount of time was. It felt like forever to me, but, but all told it was probably between 75 and 100 feet of the accident. Um, about half of that time I spent being dragged under her vehicle. Um, but I was up on the hood of her car, on, on the hood of her SUV for, you know, a decent amount of time, and, and she didn't stop, um, which would have been nice for her to see me right away and stop. None of this would have happened. So she eventually stopped. And did someone yeah. call 911? Well, the, the, she stopped because someone else kind of got in her way, and... They saw they were behind her and saw what happened, and and blocked her from going around the traffic circle. So they drove kind of the opposite direction and, wow. and stopped her. Yeah. So there were, um, luckily for me, there was a, a physician and a trauma physician at the scene. He was the he was in the car behind me. I didn't know it obviously at the time, but um, he was there. Um, the guy that stopped her actually was the one who ended up calling. Nine one one, and there were several other people there that were also ready to assist. But because I was so, they they assumed that because I was so banged up, and I and my guess is that the ER doc told them not to move me. They just left me there. Um, there was a a woman who came up, and she was really nice looking, like beautiful blonde young woman who said she was a a trauma nurse. Mm-hmm. And she sat with me and kept me from moving. And um, so without her, I, my, my initial thought when I, when the vehicle stopped was, well, I want to get out from under this car and run away. That was what I wanted to do. <laughs> so you were still uh, conscious. And then did paramedics come, arrive, someone take you to the hospital? Yeah, the paramedics came. It was very quick because the... the um, the police and fire station wasn't too far away, so it was within, you know, a couple of minutes they were there. Mm-hmm. 
and the hospital wasn't too far away either. Uh, it was a small town, so they took me to the hospital, which was maybe another half a mile in the other direction, mm-hmm. and brought me into the uh, ER. And it it was, you know, about five hours of tests and, and prodding and poking in the ER, and they found out, you know, I had massive bone breaks. I mean, I think they estimated 24 broken bones, but the bones were broken in multiple places. So it was mm-hmm. the, the bones that were broken were shattered, and most of them were in my spine. So my spine was pretty well broken. And I uh, had some internal injuries and okay. damage to my pelvis. Um, so did you go immediately into surgery, or were they stabilizing you first? They they gave me a couple of days to stabilize. They were really. Uh, they told me later they were unsure that I would actually make it through the weekend, mm. um, because people typically don't survive accidents like this. So I don't know what percentage of chance they gave me, but later my physician told me they really didn't expect me to survive the first weekend. So they scheduled me for surgery. The accident happened on a Friday. Uh, mm-hmm. My surgery was scheduled for Monday afternoon. Okay. The following Monday. And so I made it through the weekend. Um, it was a long, boring kind of weekend laying on my back in the ICU. Went into surgery, um, and they were going to install titanium uh, to mm-hmm. stabilize my spine so that, you know, I could heal without being paralyzed. Mm-hmm. And... Um, as soon as they gave me the anesthesia, I drifted off, which is kind of normal, but I, instead of uh, experiencing typical anesthesia, which is really just going black and then you're waking up in the recovery room, you know, as if nothing ever happened, um, I woke up in what looked to me to be a hillside. I was standing on a hillside looking out at mountains and beautiful uh like clouds floating through the trees. It was an incredible scene. And it, was, it wasn't it was just the scenery that stopped me kind of in my tracks. First of all, I thought, well, I'd never experienced anything like this in surgery before. Typically, you completely are lose consciousness and that's it. But I also felt an incredible amount of um, love, and peace and acceptance, which I hadn't ever felt in my life before, really. Um, it's t- certainly not as an adult. And I knew immediately that this was not surgery. <laughs> now, I this have to stop a- you because we have to go on a break. And okay. I want to hear this in continuity of, of what you're sharing. So to summarize, you've had this horrible, traumatic very serious bicycle accident being hit by a large SUV. You're dragged under a car. You stay conscious and you're very badly injured. They take you into surgery and upon receipt of anesthesia, you're transported into a very different place. As you said, not the, you know, everything turns black and you wake up in the recovery room. You are transported to a beautiful place. It sounds remarkably like Colorado, as you were describing it. (laughs) (laughs) And at that point, um, I'm not going to put words in your mouth. So we're going to go on a break. And afterward, 
Nancy will continue with talking about what happened when she found herself under anesthesia after this horrific accident and had a very different experience than most everybody we know who's gone under anesthesia has had. Her book is called Awakenings from the Light, and she recounts this amazing experience that she had. Stay with us. We're only gone for a few messages, and we'll be back to hear the rest of this experience from Nancy Rines. We'll be right back. We're Wise Health for Women Radio, and we'll return after these short messages. Did you know that having one hand in your pocket is considered arrogant in Turkey? My husband and I felt like goostrum noodles when this was pointed out to us while we were visiting in Istanbul. A goostrum noodle is a foolish person. What is seen as common behavior in one country is frequently considered bad manners or rude in another country. For example, while most Americans sit in the back seat of a taxi, in Australia, New Zealand, Ireland, Scotland, and the Netherlands, to sit in the back of the cab when the front passenger seat is available is considered rude. In Japan and South Korea, tipping is seen as an insult. And in China and India, it is considered greedy to tear into a gift in front of the giver. What's another word for a person with bad manners? A snirt. I'm Carolyn Davidson, and you can have fun challenging your words-you-never-heard vocabulary with my new app, Too Funny for Words. Welcome back. Nancy was talking right before we went on break about the fact that she was put under anesthesia and had a very different experience than most people have. So you said you found yourself in a most beautiful place. Continue your story from there. Right. So I, I came to, I, I woke up, what I thought woke up standing on a hillside, which in and of itself was unusual because my back was broken, so I shouldn't be standing. Mm-hmm. And I looked out at this scene. It was beautiful. It turned out later, I it found out this looked very much like Scotland, even though I've never been to Scotland in my life. This was very similar to what Scotland looks like. Um but I, I had the scene around me. I was in a meadow, flowers all around, trees in the distance. And there was that sense of uh, acceptance and peace and love for who I was that came through, almost like as if you were standing in front of a beautiful warm fire on a cold winter's day, how the heat kind of travels through you. That's yeah. what this love felt like that was coming through me. And it, I felt like I was being carried in big arms, like I was being hugged and accepted. And that was when I started to think, hmm, I wonder if something went wrong on the operating table and I'm maybe I died. Hmm. But then I, the next thought I had was, well, if that's the case, if I did die, here's the scientist coming back, <laughs> if I did die, <laughs> <laughs> why am I here? Because I don't believe in any of this. And, and tell people a little bit about that, your background. You were a scientist, so you really were an atheist. You you just didn't believe in God or a higher yeah. being at all, correct? 
Yeah, I was very oriented toward the material material world, world. So things that I could touch and measure, and you know, measure with a ruler or any other uh, type of instrument. It, I had to be able to touch it or experience it physically in some way before it was real. Mm-hmm. Um, the interesting thing is that not all scientists are atheists. I just happened to be because that was what was sort of accepted and learned within, you know, my science background. Mm-hmm. And I was a geoscientist and, and archaeology um, student at the time. Well, I had been an archaeology student and done archaeological work, but I was a geoscientist at the time. Mm-hmm. And very obviously very oriented toward the physical world and I had kind of wanted something to exist beyond that but I never really saw any believe to me believable evidence for it. I always needed the evidence. My mom always used to call me doubting Thomas. <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna say I, you have a precedent in the Bible about that and his name is definitely Thomas. Um, yep. <laughs> so were you raised were you raised with a faith background? My parents were uh Catholic, different my mom was Irish Catholic, and my dad was an Eastern European Catholic. Okay. Um, so there was I was just definitely... curious, because sometimes people are raised with nothing, and so that is, you know, the root of it. So you came to this on your own. Interesting. Yeah, I was I was definitely the black sheep in this regard. I was the only one in my family who didn't believe... Um, so I had that, I had that thought when I was standing there, like, I wonder if I died, but then if I did, why am I here? Because I don't believe in any of this. And to my utter surprise, <laughs> there was an answer. <laughs> uh-huh. And the answer was, because you are my child and this is your home. Welcome home. And what? like I still do every day when I recount the story, I just, I lost it. I started bawling because I knew in my heart I could feel that it was true. I I knew instantly that this life on earth was simply an experience, and that was my true home. So you experienced firsthand God's grace. Yeah. Yeah. It was amazing, like nothing I could even explain in a million years to have that level of acceptance I didn't feel like I should be accepted because I hadn't believed because I had turned my back but it didn't matter (laughs) it didn't matter I was accepted for who I was isn't that amazing did you experience um so were you aware that you were still in surgery or was this split from the surgery because you hear people talking about I saw myself below or I went toward the light. Did you feel any of that? Or were you fully in this moment where you felt accepted and calm and peace and warmth and love? Yeah, I was completely separated from what was going on in surgery. I had no no ability to see that, whatever was happening. I knew it was going on, but I, mm-hmm. I wasn't experiencing it directly. Mm-hmm. Um, I I was completely in this place, wherever, you know, this place was. And so I was there with this, what I call the voice with a capital V, which, mm-hmm. you know, is God. Um, mm-hmm. And and I just sat with that for however, I don't know how long, I can't explain how long that was because mm-hmm. time is irrelevant in that, mm-hmm. in that realm. But in, at some point, uh, a female figure walked up to me or rather, I should say, 
floated. She wasn't really walking. She was kind of skimming over the ground and, um, and welcomed me with a big, big, huge hug of, and again, more love and acceptance and peace mm. and told me that she was going to be my guide to this place and teach me what it was I needed to learn in order to come back and make my life one that would be truly memorable. Now, when she was saying that, did she mean make your life in heaven or make no, here. your <laughs> here? Oh, okay. So she was, she was saying it's not yet your time. Right. But, but here's what I'm going. Wow. Who knew that there was yeah. an onboarding to coming back? <laughs> <laughs> I definitely needed it. <laughs> so um, at what point did you yeah. dis- discern that? Oh. I'm I'm not here to stay, but I have experienced this epiphany. When did it come back to you that you were in surgery, or or how did you return? What did she teach you? Well, she taught. It seemed like she was with me for a couple of months. I mean, it felt like forever. Quite frankly, it, it was like huh. almost a semester. I call it my semester in heaven. And she taught me things that either I forgot or never learned or. Um, you know, things that hadn't been been in my family's teaching for many, many years. Things like what the true nature of love is, how to how to be loving while at the same time, you know, being faithful to yourself. Um, how what's gratitude? Ultimately what is gratitude? What is you know, it's another form of love. Mm-hmm. It isn't a way to get stuff like some people teach you. Mm-hmm. Um, the purest form of gratitude really is just appreciation and love. Um, she taught me about the importance of my choices in every moment. And this is probably, you know, things come into my consciousness on a daily basis, but this is the teaching that for me has been the most powerful over the last four and a half, five years is mm-hmm. the absolute power that I have in my life and other people's lives with my choices that I make in every moment and each choice is important each each moment is important and each choice that I make in every day how to treat myself how to treat other people how to show up in that day or in that moment is very important Uh, and I can I can contribute to divine love on this planet by my choices or I can detract from it by my choices it's up to me so that that's been the most powerful. That was that's huge. Learned it's huge. <laughs> it really is. I mean, it's huge. If you just think about today's level of incivility and disconnect, and and there's there's just a lot of unrest right now. Um, I think there's always been, but it just seems more pronounced. What you're really talking about is how we each, as individuals, can impact those around us, and it's about the golden rule, treating others as we would wish to be treated and living in the moment. That's not easy to do for many people. It, it, it can be a challenge, um, mm-hmm. you know, for many of us. And it was for me, certainly at first, it's gotten easier as I've practiced it. Mm-hmm. But it's, you know, for some people more challenging than others, but it is hard to, it's hard to admit that when, 
you interact with someone, you are affecting them. We want to think we're in this little bubble, and no matter what we do, it, it, you know, it's all about us. It's all about us. It's that little bit of narcissism our ego carries around with us. Mm-hmm. But we're part of a bigger family, whether we want to admit, admit it or not. And every time you interact with someone else, you have an opportunity. To me, it's a golden opportunity. Mm-hmm. You, know, you have the opportunity to, to help that person to be neutral or to somehow hurt that person. It, the choice is up to you. You know, we don't have to be playing on the world stage in order to have a, an effect on people. It's the day-to-day interactions that really, in, in the end, are the most important. Well, they often affect us the most. Yes, there are big, gnarly, traumatic things that do happen that obviously make big diversions in our life. But the little interactions are are what make us human and engage with others. Would you agree with that? I, I do. And, you know, there's a there's a story that I tell. There was a time not too long after my accident and NDE where um, I had been... I had been dating someone for a very short time. It wasn't really a, a long relationship. We'd only gone out a few times, and we decided to break up. He was, I was still in my, I was kind of still toying with dating scientists at that point because I, that's, that was my field. I was comfortable with, with people in that realm. And it, I could tell it just wasn't working out anymore. That old paradigm wasn't working for me. So we, we decided to, to call it quits. And I went to, of all places, Whole Foods afterwards and got <laughs> some groceries and went home, right? I was going to, I actually got right. some carrot cake. I hate, hate to say it, but I got some carrot oh, cake. It's pretty <laughs> yummy. Yeah, it's pretty yummy. And, um, just a little piece, not a whole cake, just a little piece. And as I was checking out in the, in the express lane, I guess I must have had kind of a sad look on my face or the clerk saw that I had carrot cake and a sad look on my face. And she said, honey, what happened? Aww. And I just, I said, well, you know, my, I was dating someone and we just decided to call it quits. And she dropped what she was doing, came around the counter and gave me a huge hug. And she said, no worries. It's going to be just fine. You're, you know, you're loved. And then she went back and did her thing. I thought, that's exactly what I learned. That kind of, she had the opportunity to give me a boost, and she did. And it was amazing to have just that little boost during the day. Um, but that kind of connection is rare. And, and yet we have it all in our power to elicit yeah. a smile from someone else. We are a very lonely society in general. And when we yeah. connect with people, especially perfect strangers like that, doesn't it have an amazing effect on us when we feel we've been heard? And as she said, yeah. you are loved. I mean, I, I think right. that we all have so much love within us that if we take off the bubble and pay attention to those around us, just small gestures can make an enormous difference in people's lives. We have to go on another break, but we will be back and we will continue our discussion on what changes when you really clue in to what matters in life, especially after a traumatic experience. We'll be right back. We're Wise Health for Women Radio, and we'll return after these short messages. 
was growing up in Wisconsin, no matter how frigid it was outside, my Uncle Bob never seemed to get cold. He would come in from the snow wearing a t-shirt and remark how fresh it was outside. Then again, folks from Wisconsin are a pretty hardy bunch. As America's official dairy state, the cows have been known to give ice cream instead of milk when the temperatures drop. What's a word for a giant snowball that is formed by rolling a smaller one through a field of snow? Hog-a-ma-dog. Megla is an old Scots word meaning to trudge laboriously through the snow. And mufflements is an old Lancashire word for thick, warm, insulating clothes and gloves. Don't forget that you shouldn't try and send text messages if you're standing out in the cold. It can lead to typothermia. It's I'm Carolyn Davidson, and you can have fun challenging your words-you-never-heard vocabulary with my free app, Too Funny for Words. It's the Fitness Minute with fitness expert, Annette Hammond. Since October is Breast Cancer Awareness Month, I want to encourage you to maintain your body weight or lose weight if you're overweight. Taking care of your weight is one positive way to cut your risk of breast cancer. Research shows that being overweight or obese, especially if you're past menopause, increases your risk, especially if you put the weight on as an adult. According to the National Institute of Health, 64% of women in the U.S. are overweight and or obese. A study by researchers at UT MD Anderson Cancer Center showed that obese and overweight women also had lower breast cancer survival rates and a greater chance of more aggressive disease than average weight or underweight women. Living a healthy lifestyle of daily exercise and nutritious eating will keep the weight off and lower your risk of breast cancer. I'm Annette Hammond. Welcome back. Nancy, we were talking on the break about, you know, these changes afterward, but I'd like us to take a step back to when you were under anesthesia, you were having your quote semester in heaven. You obviously had to come back. We seem to have skipped over that part. So let's come back to your return to the OR. Yeah. So after spending a bunch of time with my guide and learning all that wonderful stuff that I needed to learn, mm-hmm. I was sent back. And I was not sent back willingly. I really wanted to stay. Mm-hmm. But it was clear to me that I needed to come back. It was That was what I had signed up for was to come back. And I so I woke up in the recovery room crying and, and calling out for this woman who had been with me. Mm-hmm. And it was devastating. I mean, at first I was absolutely devastated because I felt completely cut off from all of that love and peace. Just it was like it was gone all of a sudden. Mm-hmm. Um, it turns out it wasn't. I just had to learn how to, to tap into that again and to let mm-hmm. it come back into my life. Mm-hmm. But, it, you know, within the first few days, when my, one of my sisters kind of commented about um, how horrible my recovery was going to be, my physical recovery. By this time, I had not told her what had happened. Mm-hmm. The only person I had told was the chaplain in the hospital. What was his response, I, his or her response? Well, I, you know, I, I, the funny thing is that when I came into the ER originally, I asked not to be seen by a chaplain because I was an atheist and they, you know, completely honored that request. Then the next morning after surgery, 
in walks the chaplain, this woman by the name of Liana, and she wrote the foreword to my book. Mm-hmm. And Liana came in, and I said, oh, thank God you're here. <laughs> wow. I said, something happened to me yesterday that I don't know how to explain. And she was so gracious and loving and, and explained to me what had happened, that that I had you know, come very close to death on the operating table and had gone and, and started my journey and gone to heaven. Uh, she said it was called a near-death experience. I had not, I don't think I'd heard that term at that point. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had certainly hadn't read anybody's accounts of NDEs. So she kind of gave me a little bit of an education into that. But I, I kept I kept that really from my physicians and my family for several days. I, I didn't I didn't want them to think I was nuts. There was still a part of me that thought I was crazy, even though she explained to me the, the chaplain explained to me that this is real. What you experienced is real. A lot of other people experience it as well. Mm-hmm. Um but there was still a part of me, the old scientist said, Oh my gosh, this can't be true. I must be going crazy. So before that, you know, before I told my family, one of my sisters said, well, your recovery is going to be hell. And I told her, I think the physical recovery is going to be easy as pie. It's the other stuff that's going to be hard. And she didn't know what I meant at the time. Mm -hmm. Uh, Later she understood. I knew that it was going to be a big transition for me to make to fully embrace what I had just experienced. Mm-hmm. I mean, I came back immediately knowing that for the past 20 years, what I thought I knew about life and the universe was kind of hokey and, and full of, you know, beans. It wasn't, it wasn't true at all. But at the same time, it was, I knew it would take me some time to really fully embrace what I had learned and really come to terms with it and make my life you know, into something that I, I really wanted to live. Um, I'm just and, curious. Did you have um, the doctors tell you that they thought they lost you? Well, the doctors actually did not ever own up to this. The nurse, I had a couple of nurses later who told me mm-hmm. what had happened, that I had, they had almost lost me for a few moments there on the, mm-hmm. on the operating table. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't entered in the in the official medical record um, because it happens quite a bit it and does. there's not really they weren't concerned they knew it was it happens you know blood pressures tank you know you might people might you have crash. their heart rates you, kind of drop right. and mm-hmm. you know it wasn't a for, for them it wasn't a cause for concern um, but the nurses did say something had happened and you know there was a reason for it, um, and my person, my primary care physician later, when I told him, he said, well, he sees it happen all the time, too, and he he's the one who came forward and said, yeah, this is real. He was the first, one of the first physicians, I think, who hasn't had, he has not had an NDE, but he's come forward and, and said that mine was real, so I really appreciate his support on that well um, I imagine it as take, you said it, it feels like you're crazy but 
but you knew it was real. You felt transformed. You, you probably had yeah. to take some time to process it. It took many months to really fully, well, actually, in all told, it took about 18 months to, to fully embrace it. You know, mm-hmm. uh, I, part of my dealing with it was writing a blog. I, I, I'm a writer and mm-hmm. I've always have been. So I just started taking notes about it as soon as I could write. And then I started blogging about it and it was, you know, like five people probably read the blog. It wasn't that big of a deal. <laughs> um, but, uh, I just wanted to share it with my immediate family and friends mm-hmm. and eventually it kind of grew from there. But the writing about it kind of helped make it real for me because it gave me a chance to, really deeply think about what had happened and the implications of what I had learned. Um, but it, I came back knowing that it was real, but there was something else that was kind of niggling at me, and I didn't realize it for 18 months. I was still, there was a part of me that was mad, angry mm-hmm. at God for sending me back. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. You know? Yes. Um how could you deny me staying in heaven? This is a beautiful place. There was that, that my ego was still hanging on to a little bit of anger. And when I released that about a year and a half after my experience, it was like the heaven saying light filled my life. <laughs> you know, everything really clicked at that point for me, but it not took away. Yeah, of- but not everybody gets a second chance. No, that's amazing in and of itself. Was that an overwhelming feeling for you? That I had a redo? Yeah. Yeah, you got a (laughs) do-over. I did. Uh, It was really, I I, I didn't feel like I deserved it. There was that part of me that felt like I didn't deserve it. Like, why, why would you give this to me? Why should I have the ability to redo my life when other people haven't had that ability. Um, I, I can't answer the why yet. I still don't know why, but I'm grateful for it because I had a, an opportunity to, to live my life in a different way and live it from a place of love and inspiration and creativity um, and, and joy, you know, and, and enjoyment of each little moment which has been a huge gift for me and my family too. Well, I would think it would be a gift for anyone. And I I think that being able to live in the moment is, is an enormous gift of itself, but being able to appreciate each moment is something that we can hone that practice, that gratitude practice. Everybody can learn to hone that and pay attention to it, pay attention to intuition. As you mentioned in the very beginning, you weren't paying attention to that, originally but we are amazing beings imbued with a lot of gifts and if we pay attention to those gifts i imagine that that was very difficult to to really acknowledge that you were as blessed with grace as you were yeah it was for a while it was a battle between my head my brain and Mm -hmm. my heart you know Mm -hmm. that that divine center that we all have mm-hmm. that really truly is like the the direct connection to god and and the divine is is through the heart space uh, there was a i had a war 
over that for probably six months after I came back. Like, you know, I can't, I can't just follow my heart. That just doesn't compute. Well, <laughs> of course it doesn't compute. <laughs> <laughs> no, the head follows the heart. Um, right. Exactly. It, it, it does. Exactly it. And so we have just about two minutes before we have to go on the final break of the, the show. Would you say that you, once you adjusted, and we'll continue this after the break, once you adjusted, did you then start to seek, start to find more people who went through this experience, learn what you didn't know, or did you focus on your your own practice of gratitude and compassion and kindness, or was it a combination? For me, it was a combination of both. I, I needed that community of other people who had had not just near-death experiences, because that's just one type of experience, mm-hmm. but but other spiritual experiences. There are many different types of experiences that mm-hmm. transform people, and I mm-hmm. just wanted to surround myself with other people like me. Was that you know, difficult? I, well, you know, I was living in Colorado, so no, it wasn't difficult. There was a huge <laughs> community of people who had had spiritual experiences of one kind or another. Mm-hmm. And they, in in all, you know, together helped me make that transition. Without them, it would have been a much more difficult transition to make. Um, to have that community support was incredible. To know I wasn't crazy, to know I was just like them. You know, what I hear in your voice, and correct me if I didn't mean to cut you off, correct me if I'm wrong, but this still magically affects you. You, you have to pull the words together sometimes because this experience was so life changing. And we do have to go on a break, but in, in just a few words, is that still true today? Yeah, it still continues to unfold for me. I, I think this is just marvelous. So we have to go on our final break of the show, and we will talk further about the changes she's made, what she recommends as, you know, the, the lessons learned, some of the life lessons learned from the near-death experience. And we'll be back with Nancy Ryan's Awakenings from the Light after these short messages. And I, I know this is a very interesting topic for many. So stay with us. We'll be back after these short messages. We're Wise Health for Women Radio, and we'll return after these short messages. Thompson, co-founder of the Save the Elephant Foundation, was taking a rescued elephant named Kam La for a walk along the river. As they were walking, Derek decided to stop and take a dip in the water. But when he called to Kam La, who was waiting on the shore, the elephant thought he was in trouble and came running to his rescue. Kam La charged through the water, sheltering him with her body and offering her trunk for him to hold on to. What's another word for a trained elephant? A kumki. Elephant trainers in Asia are known as mahouts. And the padded seat or saddle used to ride on an elephant is called a howdah. 
Kamla and her mother, Bai Tway, are among the 70 elephants the foundation has rescued since its inception. It's marching day. I'm Carolyn Davidson, and you can have fun challenging your words you never heard vocabulary with my free app, Too Funny for Words. It's the Fitness Minute with fitness expert, Annette Hammond. Let's face it. We are all aging, and our bodies are changing. Our muscles tend to get tight and stiff as we age. But simple stretching can help with the tightness and stiffness of your muscles. Always stretch after your workout and not before. Your muscles need to be warm before you start stretching them out. Never force a stretch. Don't get to the point where you take the stretch too far and hurt yourself. Be sure to breathe. Breathing helps send that oxygen-rich blood into your muscles. Aim to stretch daily, but make sure you stretch at least three times per week. Keep your body flexible and pliable. Give priority to the muscles that you use the most in your workouts and in everyday life. Don't neglect any major muscle groups. Stretch, breathe, and relax. It's so good for you. I'm Annette Hammond. To hear other fitness and weight loss tips, visit our website at AnnetteHammond.com. Welcome back. We're continuing our conversation, conversation with Nancy Rhinus. And I am we, on the break. Of course, we're always talking. I wish you could hear some of those breaks sometimes. But we talk often about when we have an, a, a changing experience, but some people move right on from it. And they just chalk it up to, okay, that was really interesting. And then there are others that take advantage of a transformational experience and change their life. Your subtitle of your book is 12 Life Lessons from a Near-Death Experience. Would you be willing to share one or two of those and what this changed in your life on a daily basis? Yeah, uh, let's go over it. For me, two of the most important ones that were stressed was, first of all, love, which divine love is, is really an energy that forms the structure of everything. It is, when I first came back, I, I told everybody, well, it's the scaffolding that, that everything is built on. Um, but it's really the binding, I call it now the binding force. It is, mm-hmm. it is everything. It is at the core of everything here and in heaven. We're not separate from it in the physical. It, mm-hmm. it might be a little bit harder for us to see it or sense it, but it's here. Mm-hmm. And, we may not be able to be as loving as God, you know, we're humans, but we can certainly act in more loving ways to each other. And we talked a little bit about this earlier, but really love isn't, love at, at, at a spiritual level isn't just something that we feel, it's how we act. Mm-hmm. And there's a bit of a difference, love, what, what, what they told me, what Mary, my, my guide told me, which her name is Mary, and she said, don't read too much into that, but <laughs> she's just really? Mary. Yeah. <laughs> she said, okay. not don't run with that. It's just, it's just a Mary. There have been a lot of Marys in the world, so no. Um, <laughs> but she said, you know, love is really a verb. The purest forms of love are verbs. It, it, you act you are acting in loving ways. It isn't just something you feel for someone. That's the first step. Um, but you can act in loving ways to people that you don't even like. You know, someone that you might not get along with, you can still be 
loving, kind, compassionate, caring, but you don't have to necessarily bring them home and have a you know intimate relationship with them. It, it's again how you interact with people on a daily basis, and and that includes yourself. You know, a lot of That's when huge. people say, yes. "Well, you know." God tells us to love everybody else as we love ourselves. I said, yeah, we're doing a pretty good job of that because a lot of people don't really love themselves. <laughs> and oh, that's interesting. so they treat each other poorly because they don't know how to treat themselves well. Um, so, so this applies to yourself as well. If you need to learn self-love first, by all means, you know, that's the place to start. And, you know, if you've been traumatized as a child, I would certainly recommend starting with yourself first because adults who have been victims of childhood trauma tend to have pretty, you know, low opinions of themselves. And it's not their fault, but that's just how they they grow up. And if that's you, please get help, you know, learning how to love yourself first. You deserve it. Are um, you talking about forgiveness? Forgiving, yeah, forgiving yourself for your parents' mistakes. <laughs> you, you can't, you can't undo what your parents did, right? You can't. Um, but you can go forward in a new direction, in a new new way, being supportive and loving to yourself. I think um, what you're saying is extremely important in this era of. If you're harmed, you're harmed forever. And I work a lot with veterans, and so we talk about mm. post-traumatic stress disorder. But there's also right. such a thing as post-traumatic growth. And it often happens not as dramatically as what you went through, but an understanding that uh, trauma happens to nearly everyone on varying levels, um, some yeah. higher, some lower, but that forgiving ourselves, forgiving other people around us, moving on with gratitude and compassion is within us. Is that how you find yourself now treating other people most of the time? I'm in a very, very compassionate place the majority of the time. And mm -hmm. it, it, it still amazes me how much love I have for every person on this planet, every tree, every animal. I, I don't, I would never have expected that for myself. Uh, I have so much love. It doesn't mean I let people walk all over me. I gently have boundaries and I, you know, I respect myself. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I understand what you just talked about that everybody, you know, there's, we all have stories, we all have traumas. And, it, you know, that person over there may not have had the opportunity that I have had to learn how to pull themselves out of that. So I have an incredible amount of compassion for people. And when I can help, when they ask for help, when they ask for a direction, I'll do my best to point them in the right direction. I'm not a therapist, so I don't take that on, but... Mm -hmm. I do encourage people to get appropriate help to work through challenges that are keeping them from living their best lives. There are so many people that merely accept their lives rather than live them. 
is mm-hmm. this and I don't think you need the kind of experience you had to realize that there's more in terms of thriving and and be, living a fuller life. You mentioned love as one of the life lessons that you learned. Can you share another one? I think along with what you just said there is is really gratitude and gratitude mm-hmm. is so big. If that's all you can do, that's huge. You know, if that's the only spiritual practice that you have, it can transform your life. Just mm-hmm. that alone. Uh, you know, every morning when I wake up, I still feel grateful for being able to swing my legs to the floor and stand up. Because it was touch and go for a long time as to whether I could ever walk again. Um, and, you know, that kind of gratitude, I mean, when you're, instead of focusing on, all the horrible things that are going wrong in your life. Pick three or four things that are pretty awesome. Like, yeah, I was able to get up and walk around this morning. Not everybody mm-hmm. can do that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, not everybody has a warm place to call home in the winter time. I have, you know, it might not be the Taj, as big as the Taj Mahal or something or Windsor Palace, but I have a warm place to sleep at night and food on the table. Mm-hmm. Even if it has to be small, chunks of gratitude to start with focus on those things that you have not what you don't have um, that's and, a reframing and, really, and a, a rethinking of perspective and it can change your life I, I kept a gratitude journal for many many years I still do from time to time because when you do realize what you have you focus much less on what you don't have. And I'm a big less is more person these days mm-hmm. because life can be so simple. We complicate it. Don't you think? We, we do. We do. We make it a lot more complicated than it needs to be. <laughs> it's, it's often that's the, the case. nature of this life, you know, um, I it to be all complicated and dramatic and that's fine. No, in fact, I think it's either. interesting how you, you know, give this story in just a a very reasonable tone. Um, there's a bit of wonder in your voice, and I, I hope it always stays there because I think it gives hope to others that there is so much more. And, you know, when you have something that's bigger than you are and you've had an experience like that, I, I think it's a very hopeful um, experience to to realize that I've always believed if you don't see darkness, the light doesn't mean as much to you. And so we Mm -hmm. are put through some difficult things, but you appreciate the good things more because of sometimes the adverse experiences you've gone through. Right. Yeah. I, I can't, I don't know if I would have changed without having had the accident and the NDE. I I don't know. I, I doubt it. Um, so for me, and it sounds weird to a lot of people, but I'm extremely grateful for what I went through because mm-hmm. it it completely transformed my life. Now, that doesn't mean that people out there listening to this have to go through an NDE in order to transform their lives. I don't, I don't recommend it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't put it's, that on your calendar. No, it's, it's a big deal. It's hard for some people, and it was hard. I mean, it was physically hard for me. It was emotionally hard for me. Mm-hmm. Um, 
same time, I'm grateful for it. But you you can make changes in your life without having to have a traumatic experience like this. But it does take consistency. It takes some dedication. It doesn't necessarily take a lot of time, but it does take attention. And that's the part for me that I'm, I think, most grateful for after all is said and done is I can't believe how conscious that I am in each and every moment and how much of my time before this accident I had spent basically zoned out and on autopilot. And it's a huge difference when you can make a gradual shift into being more conscious and aware in each moment of what you're doing and saying and thinking and feeling. Um, I, I me, love that's that. that's a big thing. Well, I I think that's super important, and I want to make sure that people know that your book is called Awakenings from the Light, 12 Life Lessons from a Near-Death Experience, and you can find out more at nancyrynes, R-Y-N-E-S dot com. And, you know, these insights that you've shared today in this wisdom, I find it very hopeful. I find it very... um, satisfying to to hear these things and whether or not you have a faith foundation these experiences are fascinating and it has changed you and i can hear the compassion love contentment all of that the warmth in your Mm -hmm. voice and and thank you for sharing that with us today I, i think this kind of transformational wisdom is dramatic but it's very real and genuine thank you thank you so much for allowing me to be on your show My pleasure entirely. Thank you for listening today, and we'll be back next week with another interesting guest and interesting experiences. We are so glad that you've spent time with us. Make it a great day. Thank you for tuning in today. You can find more shows at wisehealthforwomenradio.com.